The setting for our story is Kenya. Located centrally along the east coast of Africa, the country is sandwiched between Tanzania in the south and Ethiopia to its north. Kenya also shares borders with Somalia, South Sudan, and Uganda. Large sections of the country look a lot like what most people think of when they picture Africa. Lions are the official animal of the state, and there remain plenty of giraffes, gazelles, and rhinos among the wildlife that you would expect to see when visiting any of its 54 national parks. But the country is home to more than just the beautiful yet stereotypical savannas of Africa. Along the Indian Ocean coast, large mangrove trees line the shore. But it is the Great Rift Valley and Mount Kenya that dominate the western landscape. Worldwalks, a travel group, describes Kenya's natural landscapes as breathtaking, including the Maasai Mara Reserve, Denai Beach, and Hell's Gate National Park as full of incredible wildlife, dramatic landscapes, unspoiled wilderness, and world-famous sunsets. The nation's unique combination of dunes, tropical forests, impressive grasslands, vast arid plains, and lush beaches mean every day spent in Kenya is unique. Year-round sunshine and acidic soil make Kenya an ideal place for growing tea, which was just one of the cash crops that the British saw as a possibility when it pursued its colonization efforts in 1895 through the creation of the East African Protectorate. Coffee would prove to be the country's biggest moneymaker. And where there's money to be made, the West will find a way. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the first episode in a five-part series regarding the father of modern-day Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta. Episode 1, The Colonization of Kenya. Opposite of what most assume, England was in a state of decline when it turned its focus towards the colonization of Africa. The British had previously dominated their continental competition through a de facto monopoly on global trade. This trade was the result of a number of factors. First, they had established and embraced the Industrial Revolution quicker than anyone else. As a result, their factories churned out cheaper goods quicker than anywhere else. Secondly, Great Britain spanned the globe, providing it with both the infrastructure necessary to facilitate a trade network and the ability to open or connect markets to one another. With holdings in the Americas, India as its crown jewel, and China via their nefarious role in utilizing opium to open up the imperial halls of East Asia, England was able to deliver goods from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world. The third factor in their dominance was the existence of the East India Company, which gave them a ruthless edge against their competitors via their fleet of warships and predatory capitalist instincts. 
The combination of these factors meant that England controlled the rules that governed trade for the vast majority of the 18th century. So why then was England in decline at the beginning of the 19th century? The simple answer is that their global trade monopoly was swiftly eroding. Napoleon had forcibly encouraged the rest of Europe to industrialize by initiating a continental blockade of England. Other competitors, including the Dutch, Spanish, and French, had bolstered their own imperial portfolios. And in 1858, the East India Company was abolished after the Great Indian Rebellion. In order to reverse this decline, Great Britain needed a new moneymaker to replace its crown jewel. Why now? It's always one of the most important questions that historians have to ask. England held territories that touched the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, but none in Africa. It wasn't that Europe suddenly began to fantasize about Africa in the 1800s. England and all of the European imperial powers were obsessed with Africa as early as the 1400s for the role that it played within the transatlantic slave trade. Europe's history with the so-called Dark Continent goes back significantly further than that, with the ancient Greeks and Romans establishing trade inroads with the north in order to interact with civilizations in the central part of the continent. Violence was inherent within the slave trade, so it also wasn't an indication that a new, more bloodthirsty regime had gained the crown. Rather, it was three inventions that opened up the continent to European control for the very first time. For comparison's sake, let's look first at the British experience regarding the colonization of America in the 1500s. Jared Diamond's Pulitzer Prize-winning work of Guns, Germs, and Steel explains why small groups of mere hundreds were able to easily subdue the entirety of the Americas. The title gives away the answers, with the germs leading the way. Diamond teaches that we suspect that as much as 95% of the indigenous population were killed off by European germs, particularly smallpox. The vast majority of human pathogens initially came from close interactions with domesticated animals. Smallpox mutated from cattle to humans and ravaged the European continent. You have likely seen a number of paintings from Europe's Middle Ages in which the nobles of the time caked their faces in what appeared to be thick white paint. The impetus for this was to cover up the scars that the survivors of smallpox bore. Gradually, those survivors of the epidemic built up a resistance to the highly contagious illness, so that the mortality rate declined over time until we were able to develop a vaccine and eradicate it from the world. The indigenous peoples of America did not have domesticated cattle until the Columbian Exchange. Thus, there was no smallpox on the continent, and therefore absolutely zero immunity among their populations. As the Europeans interacted with natives, both positively and negatively, transmissible germs crossed ethnic boundaries. Sick East Coast natives interacted with friendly tribes in the Midwest, 
who then unknowingly traded the illness with groups in the Great Plains. Thus, the illness traveled significantly faster than the colonizers, who just had to mop up the survivors of once great nations, rather than conquer these civilizations. Europeans were indeed vulnerable to American diseases, but Yaws and Chagas disease, which are both incredibly gross, weren't nearly as fatal. Africans, on the other hand, had European cattle and had interacted for thousands of years with Europeans. Thus, they had developed the same level of immunity to smallpox as the European peers had. Africa's worst diseases, on the other hand, are typically spread by the environment rather than through people-to-people -people transmission. Waterborne illness as well as mosquito-borne malaria and yellow fever were devastating to Europeans who had little to no immunity against the environment of Africa. Even worse, horses were incredibly vulnerable to sleeping sickness, which was transmitted by the tsetse fly. Thus, they couldn't leverage their greatest military weapon in an effort to conquer Africa. Next, Europeans used guns to either frighten indigenous peoples or bribe them to join their strength to the colonizers. Africa had already bought access to guns as a major trade commodity from the slave trade. African armies were as well-armed as the European would-be conquerors. Diamond explains that steel allowed for the creation of the ships to cross the ocean, something that was unnecessary in their travel to Africa as well as in the creation of armor that was invulnerable to the weapons of the Aztecs, Incas, Navajo, and Miami civilizations. African metalsmiths were considered to be far more advanced than their European counterparts. Steel wasn't a new concept to the Africans, and had already been incorporated into their society for centuries. Thus, it wasn't for a lack of desire that the colonization of Africa didn't begin until the 1800s. It was because the African civilizations would have crushed any effort to force their way onto their lands. So what changed? Three inventions changed everything. First, the invention of quinine. The world's first treatment for malaria made it possible for Europeans to travel deeper onto the continent, which is actually significantly larger than you have been led to believe. The map that most history and geography books utilize is known as the Mercator Projection. This version of the world map dramatically shrinks Africa and enlarges Greenland. In reality, Africa is large enough to fit the entirety of the contiguous United States, China, Japan, Eastern Europe, India, as well as the Western European nations of Spain, France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom. The invention of the steamboat was the second breakthrough. It made it possible to travel the numerous navigable rivers quickly enough to move forces as well as their supplies, something that they had previously needed horses for. Finally, the Europeans upgraded their weaponry with the invention of the Maxim gun. 
in addition to African civilizations having their own guns, the gun of the previous era required powder to be lit. Oftentimes, the damp rainforests of Central Africa rendered these weapons impotent when the time for them was needed. The Maxim gun was the first cartridge-loading gun, thus solving the problem and granting the Europeans superior firepower over the Africans for the first time since the 1400s. With the path finally clear for invasion, the European powers gathered in 1885 for the Berlin Conference, during which they carved up the entire continent among themselves. There were zero African representatives, nor were any Africans consulted on whether or not there was any desire to enter into this relationship with the European colonizers. It was just a rich, privileged, white European group of men patting each other on the back for how civilized they were in coming to a peaceful agreement to destroy all of Africa. Among other pieces, Great Britain was awarded Kenya and proceeded to hand over the initial administrative rights to the British East African Company, a private joint stock business venture that was closely aligned to the crown. In 1895, they removed the company's control and took direct responsibility for the newish precious gem in England's empire of crown jewels. They made a poor first impression. Their initial major project to improve the lives of the crown's new citizens was the building of a railway across the region. The main workers for this endeavor were Indian laborers that would go on to later settle down in the colony setting the stage for what would become a truly multiracial new society. That's an impressive sentence when you look at it without any understanding of what would come next. First, the British were in fact bringing modernization to this portion of Africa. The railway was one of the most transformative inventions in world history. The movement of goods in a speedy and predictable manner had the potential to positively change everything for Kenya. The second portion of that sentence was that they brought in laborers from other portions of the empire. Although these workers weren't well paid and faced harsh conditions, as most indentured servants do, one imagines with the history of the British Empire that it could have been worse for the local population. Allowing the workers to settle the new land was a positive step, rather than just throwing away their labor after they were done with it. Unfortunately, the introduction of the railway and Indian laborers didn't result in the sunny outlook that I just presented. Rather, it is the first event that we can really look back upon as triggering the cascade of circumstances that will result in the ascendancy of Jomo Kenyatta. The problem was less the introduction of modernity as it was the understanding of the land's people and rich history. For you see, the railroad's path necessitated the removal of Kenya's largest ethnic group, the Kikuyu, from a large portion of their ancestral lands in the White Highlands. Specifically, the Kikuyu lost 6% of their land, 
And while that may not seem like much, imagine losing 6% of your house or 6% of your property, state, or country. For America, that is the equivalent of losing more than the entire state of California, or just a bit under losing the entire state of Texas. Worse, the portion that was chosen for the railway was among the most productive agricultural land in the Kikuyu's home territory. The displacement of the Kikuyu people and the arable land set the stage for their violent uprising in the 1950s, something that we will detail in the second episode of this series. So why rattle the hornet's nest? Parliament felt that the railway would help civilize East Africa by facilitating the spread of Christianity. Oddly enough, the Empire's mistakes this time around weren't because of strict utilitarian thinking, meaning that the greatest good for the greatest number of people was automatically the right or moral decision. The mistakes they made this time came from a twisted form of deontology, whereas you judge the decision not on the consequences of the action, but the reason for doing it in the first place. In this instance, the British Empire was attempting to right their prior wrongs in Africa related to slavery, despite the fact that Kenya was itself relatively untouched by the horrific practice. This time round, they wanted to help the Kenyan people achieve everlasting life through their religious beliefs, this imposition of their ideals over local customs, religions, and habits will continue throughout the British colonialization of Kenya. That isn't to say that everyone involved in the process looked at it that way. There were a number of members of parliament who were believers in a domino theory-esque conspiracy theory. The story went something like this. First, Germans would dam up the Nile River in Uganda, which is directly to the west of Kenya. That would have major ramifications on the north-flowing Nile River, namely destroying the environment that makes up the entire history of the Egyptian people, who were currently colonized by Great Britain. With the Nile going the way of the Colorado River, England would be forced out of Egypt an abandonment which would logically conclude with the Brits being forced to abandon the Suez Canal. Now here's the real doozy in the justification of this conspiracy theory. For you see, England's abandonment to the Suez Canal would make it impossible for the British Empire to come to India's aid in the event of a crisis, for it would take too long to sail around the Cape of Africa if some hostile power took control of Europe's access point to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean that lies beyond. The theory was so prevalent in London that the British press referred to this railroad project as the Lunatic Express. So who are these Kikuyu people that have been displaced from their ancestral homes? After all, it is lazy history work to just assume that whoever was fighting the British were the good guys. The Kikuyu are a Bantu-speaking tribe that settled at the face of Mount Kenya somewhere between 1200 and 1600 AD. This period was the height of the first trans saharan slave trade, and later the Atlantic slave trade. 
Miraculously, the Kikuyu avoided both during this time period. They avoided the trans-Saharan slave trade by immediately killing any Arab traveler that came to their soil. Their resistance didn't last forever as the peoples of Kenya joined in on the profit-seeking involved in the transatlantic slave trade around the year 1770. The reasons were more practical than moral. The march to the European ships took more than 100 days, and too few captured individuals survived the journey to justify the trade. The Kukuyu began to assimilate local tribes to boost their own strength and are among the first to utilize iron tools for their benefit. Religiously, the Kukuyu believe in Ngai as the supreme god of being, a god who lived in the sky, appearing above Mount Kenya whenever there was a cloud of rain on the mountain. Like Thor, Gai could harness the power of lightning in order to punish the people of Kenya. It was Gai that created the first man and woman, from whom the civilization believes in turn created nine daughters. The lack of sons was considered to be a particular blessing, marking theirs as a truly matriarchal society at its beginning. But it is a problem to have only 11 people on the planet, of which just one is a male. Rather than entering into Habsburg-like incestual marriage agreements, the father prayed and offered sacrifice to Guy under a fig tree. The next day, nine men conveniently appeared in order to marry their daughters. These nine happy couples became the ancestral trees of the nine Kikuyu tribes. Interestingly, there are versions of this founding myth that involves a tenth daughter. But the Kikuyu have always held that the number ten is unlucky, much in the same way that many skyscraper buildings find the number thirteen unlucky, and thus they skip the floor in their designs. The Kikuyu may have eliminated one daughter from their history books. Indeed, to this day, many Kikuyu will say the phrase, full nine, rather than uttering the word ten. Like many pre-industrialized societies, everything about the Kikuyu was interconnected to God. The spokesman or leader of the tribe was deemed to have the most connection to God, suggesting an early African version of the divine right of kings. Accordingly, humans dominate the earth because their connection to God is stronger than that of the animals, suggesting that God is human-like. Also, the Kikuyu believed in reincarnation, but it was an option that you didn't even need to achieve Buddhist-like enlightenment for. The connection between blood and families was strong enough to allow for a continuation of life on earth, but most chose not to, instead embracing the afterlife. There are a number of ideas in this faith that made the Kikuyu susceptible to the Christianity that was headed towards them on the lunatic locomotive. The monotheistic nature of the religion, with a god formed in human likeness and able to both punish and reward, were all concepts that predated the arrival of the Europeans. There are even stories handed down through the African oral tradition concept of Gerwis, that include common themes from the Bible, 
including many which focus on sacrifice, such as is found in the story of Cain and Abel. Thus, the religious conversion happened quickly, as locals were included in missionary schools and introduced to the concepts as part of the payment for medical clinics. The Bible was even translated into the Kikuyu language more than 100 years ago, making Kenya home to one of the first ever African versions of the Christian holy text. Indeed, a religious awakening was begun in direct exchange for needed services that only the British were able to provide. For the empire did not believe in teaching these people to fish. Rather, they began from the beginning ensuring that the people of Kenya were wholly dependent upon them. Conversion didn't solve all the people's problems, however. Like many Christians, Kikuyu converts, such as Jomo Kenyatta, were persecuted by both sides when push came to shove. During the Mau Mau crisis, Christian Kikuyu would refuse to swear the oaths that bound the movement together because they believed that it violated their oath to Jesus as a Christian. This refusal of an oath, however, didn't stop the English from shaking them down for information. The White Highlands is among the most prosperous agricultural land in all of Africa, from which the Kikuyu people ate well, enjoying maize and beans in a dish known as githir, mukimo, which is made up of mashed green peas and potatoes, as well as the less desirable to my 21st century sensibilities of tora, which is sausage made using goat intestines, their meat, and their blood. The Kikuyu were a stateless society, something that delayed their opposition in response to the loss of their land. Leadership was considered earned and given as a sign of respect. When it was necessary, a fly whisk, something that Jomo Kenyatta was regularly photographed with, became a symbol of authority. These leaders of necessity typically came from a council of elders who spoke only by consensus. The British lack of understanding regarding these people was the worst when it came to understanding how they perceived the importance of land ensuring that they would resist the losing of any land, let alone 6% of it. According to their teachings, a man or a woman had to have access to land before they could move from childhood to adulthood. Land acquisition was a rite of passage for each member of the Kikuyu people. A man had to accumulate the resources necessary to pay for the bride wealth of a wife, or, for the non-Christian Kikuyu, multiple wives, who would in turn bear them children in order to work the land and produce wealth for the family. Negotiations involved both sides' parents, typically the fathers, having a beer together in order to negotiate a proper price. As in most polygamous societies, each wife received their own house, and the husband traveled from wife to wife, rather than bringing them together all under one roof. Thus, one could marry as many wives as he could afford to support, and that meant enough land to feed everyone. 
It was also this ownership of the land that gradually broke down the original matriarchal state in order to facilitate man's place on top of the society's social hierarchy. Without land, a man would remain socially a boy. A woman needed land to grow crops, to nurture and sustain her family, without which she remained a child. As the British removed land, Kikuyu were forced to travel into the city and reject the traditional life of the Kikuyu, oftentimes never to return again to their homes and families. Many of the leaders of the nine original Kikuyu tribes saw their own impending social extinction on the horizon. Family units were incredibly important to the people that resided on the White Highlands. The first boy of each family was traditionally named after his grandfather on his dad's side, and the second boy is named after the mother's father. The first daughter is named after the father's mother, and the second in turn after the mother's mother. The tribesmen truly believe that family is circular rather than linear, with each new generation replacing their grandparents and thus raising the expectation that each family have at least four children. But such large families need large amounts of land, for the local population was therefore always in a state of growth. The relative peace in the area, the lack of the slave trade, and the fact that they resided on incredibly fertile land meant that the Kikuyu could always count on manpower. Today, the Kikuyu remain the largest ethnic group in Kenya, with 17% of the country's population, the majority of whom still participate in agricultural industries overlooked by Guy and Mount Kenya. To be clear, the Kikuyu had many reasons to be upset at the loss of their land in the name of Christian progress. The English opened up reservations for the displaced, but many were unwilling to go quietly. Rather than halting the plans for the railroad and properly diagnosing the locals' concerns over the project, the British quickly came to the conclusion that they would have to be pacified before progress could proceed. It was futile, however, as the brave but angry Kikuyu were no match for the newly invented Maxim gun, and the conflict is described by historian Carolyn Elkins as resembling big game hunting more than actual combat. It was at this point that one can detect the cynicism regarding the British people who continually proclaimed that this was a civilizing mission designed to make amends for the nation's past deeds. Some officers, such as Francis Hall of the British East India Company, actually advocated to eliminate the Kikuyu right there and then, suggesting that he would be only too delighted to eliminate them. But he couldn't, because of his own men's dependence upon them for their food supplies. It is always amazing to come across passages that simply shrug at the concept of mass genocide. There were individual tragedies that meet the traditional definition of genocide, 
Captain Richard Mertagen participated in the outright destruction of multiple villages, executing all men, women, and children who resided within. It was at this showcase of absolute brutality that the Kikuyu began to cede their land to the British Grand Railroad designs. Fleeing both the Maxim gun and the smallpox that the soldiers had brought to their homes, the success of the violence and the massive loss of population allowed the British to take far more land than what was needed just for the railroad. And since the railroad brings progress in the form of commerce towns setting up all along its path, the colonizers had to figure out how to settle all of the newly available land. Interestingly enough, they explored the idea of creating the world's first Zionist state for persecuted European Jews, but discarded it in favor of making money. Advertisements from the era still exist, showing that the British government promised settlers free land in order to get rich quick via cash crops. The evidence shows that England had its eyes set on turning Kenya into white man's country. One such advertisement read like this, Settle in Kenya, Britain's youngest and most attractive colony. Low prices at present for fertile areas, no richer soil in the British Empire. Kenya Colony makes a practical appeal to the intending settler with some capital. Its valuable crops give high yields due to the high fertility of the soil, adequate rainfall, and abundant sunshine. Secure the advantage of native labor to supplement your own effort. Two types of people answered the advertisement siren song. First were small-scale farmers from South Africa. These men and women were less affluent, but still able to buy up thousands of acres of land that was priced dirt cheap. From their time in South Africa, these settlers arrived with already developed, hardened, racist social attitudes, blaming local African people for their own inability to farm the local land. You can guess the answer to the question of whether or not they took the time to learn the local techniques necessary to succeed. This type of settler immediately became a drain on the colony's limited resources. The second group was a little more interesting and brought a lot more to the table. This second group was made up of aristocratic big men directly from the shores of Britain. Interestingly, this group had managed to avoid prior colonizing missions, safely intact within the lands of their wealthy ancestors. But economic recession and the closing of the economic and social gap between the upper middle class and the nobility had left many second and third sons without any inheritance or role to play within the traditional family businesses. With the firstborn sons set to inherit everything, Kenya offered these second and third born children a chance to make their own name, money, and legacy. This group's political connections in London were beyond powerful, which allowed them to succeed in getting the cheap leases that they bought extended from 99 years to 999 years. 
Thus, these settlers immediately indicated that they were in Kenya for the long haul. But that didn't necessarily mean they were hard workers. In fact, this class of young aristocrats came looking for what every American teenager seeks. The ability to make copious amounts of money while doing as little work as humanly possible. Creating the flip side of The Shining's warning that all play and no work makes these quite dull boys. The vision for Kenya that they came to embrace was that of the American South as a plantocracy. They hired locals at depressingly low wages and used them as domestic workers while doing the quintessential British thing of dressing them up in tuxes. One wonders how many were regularly referred to as Alfred or Jeeves. A modern-day motto adapted to this crew would be, work not too hard, play hard, as their life was one of excess, filled with big game hunting and hanging out at what remains the dominant social hangout, the Muthagai Club, known as the Moulin Rouge of Africa, which might make you think the next time you sing the lyrics, Mocha Chocolate, Ya Ya Creole Lady Marmalade. Locals described the happenings of this feudal elite caste as nothing short of an oversexed non-stop party with champagne and gin for breakfast, Japanese prostitutes for lunch, and cocaine and morphine for dinner, preserving the aristocratic life of debauchery. The sin of the club became so widespread that a common joke in England asked, are you married or do you live in Kenya? There was one unique request regarding Kenya's status as a British colony, namely that it could never be allowed to become a burden on British taxpayers. This meant that it had to be completely self-sufficient for its own needs while simultaneously having cash being constantly pumped out of it. Rather than outside investment, the locals would be forced to bear all of the costs of the development of Kenya. To make things even more unbalanced, there were rules on the books that settlers were able to completely avoid any and all taxes, further shouldering the load on the indigenous people, who would be paying for the tax breaks that allowed the newly settled socialite class to party all night, every night. The new money that came in was entirely devoted to cash crop extraction rather than sustainable development despite the fact that at this point in time, many of their leases ran for 999 years. Even those 99-year leases are only going to begin to expire in 2050. Schools, clinics, and social institutions were reduced to fighting for the economic scraps that were left over by the railways, roads, telegraph infrastructure, and administrative costs of ruling a country. If making money was the colonists' first thought, then their second and third thoughts were used to convince themselves that they were the good guys. They put a lot of thought and time into convincing themselves that they were the saviors, civilizing the local peoples, teaching them more efficient ways to farm and improve their lives, even redeeming their backward heathen souls via the introduction of their Christian faith. 
Of course, we now have empirical evidence that European farming techniques didn't work in Africa, and that these backward heathens knew exactly how to get the most that they could out of the land that had been a part of their families for generations. This way of thinking allowed the settlers to convince themselves that they weren't stealing land or exploiting labor. Instead, they were acting as self-appointed trustees for the hapless natives who had not yet reached a point on the evolutionary scale to make responsible decisions for themselves. In other words, the settlers were Britney Spears' father, serving as the conservator for his pop star daughter, something that seemed to be in her best interest until hashtag free Britney began in earnest. America had its own famous run-in with this line of thinking, best represented by the Carlisle Indian School, a school whose slogan was, kill the Indian and save the man. Rather than viewing Africans with nobility and pathos, they looked at them as biologically inferior, with smaller brain sizes, a limited capacity to feel pain or emotion, and individuals with different nutritional needs, claiming that all they needed was a bowl of maize to maintain their daily health. Like the old British slave runners, they dehumanized them. Like Hitler, they utilized science in a failing attempt to prove that their racism was justifiable. The obsession to civilize the savage is best represented by the title of Richard Kipling's infamous poem, The White Man's Burden. Kipling encourages the U.S. to embrace the British mindset, writing that America should take up the white man's burden, set forth the best ye breed, go send your sons to exile, to serve your captive's need, to wait in heavy harness, on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught solen peoples, half-devil and half-child. The math behind half-devil and half-child seems to leave out any possibility for a person. The failure to quickly fix these locals, who had no need nor desire to be fixed, made the already virulent racist ideology only grow worse. Elkins tells us that the description of the natives slid along the racist spectrum from stupid, inferior, lazy, and childlike to the more dangerous designations of savage, barbaric, and animal-like. As colonists descended towards dehumanization, locals increasingly came to the conclusion that they were being exploited without any gain. One of the few beneficial aspects of the colonization was the installation of Christian missionary schools. This was less for their kill the savage, save the man, divine mission, and more so the fact that they brought basic education skills to more of the local population. But it wasn't charity work, as the locals had to pay for the school's services. After all, Kenya wasn't to be a drain on England, nor the nation's churches. The Kikuyu reserves were dominated by the presence of Presbyterians, Angelicans, Methodists, and Catholics, all competing for the right to save the souls of the Kikuyu. Jomo Kenyatta was brought up in a Scottish missionary school, 
That school remains functioning today as part of the Presbyterian faith. For the colonial government, the presence of privatized education was a win-win, as religion offered civilization on the cheap. Each church-slash-school established their own houses of worship, schools, and medical clinics. But there were signs that not all was right. Locals claimed that the priests would preach with a gun holstered around their waist, and occasionally with a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other. Jomo Kenyatta was born as Kamau, the son of Genji. Education was a passion for the young man who abandoned his family, risking everything in order to attend his school. The education that he got there came under the colonial baptismal name of Johnstone Camus. While at the school, he learned English, interpreted Bible verses, studied math, and practiced carpentry. In order to pay for his room and board, he simultaneously worked as a houseboy and cook for a wealthy European settler. He abandoned his Christian name in favor of Kenyatta, which has absolutely nothing to do with the name of his country, a common assumption that played into his personality cult as the nation's George Washington. Instead, Kenyatta is a Kikuyu term that means fancy belt something that Jomo had been known to wear. He got a job as a clerk in the Public Works Department in Nairobi, Kenya's most populous city. He then jumped up the ladder to serve as an interpreter in the high court before working for the Nairobi Town Council. His life was indistinguishable from the thousands of Kikuyu who had abandoned their traditional life for the promises of the Europeans. He even settled down with a wife, and began to raise a family. But some grow bored with the simple life. In the early 1920s, Jomo was called to action by a group of young men who formed the Kikuyu Central Association, or KCA. In order to protest in favor of maintaining the tribal belief of female genital mutilation, a practice that is proven to cause significantly more harm than good, Thousands of Kikuyu broke with the teachings of the mission schools in an unsuccessful attempt to reinstate the practice. Jomo was impassioned by this debate and would later go on to write his master's thesis on the issue. He eventually would become the leader of the KCA, which was the first mass protest movement against the British since the time that the Kikuyu had risen up in opposition to the Lunatic Express. The colonial government thus viewed the KCA with hostility, labeling it as a subversive organization. As the struggle for female genital mutilation continued in Kenya, Jomo as the leader of the KCA was sent to London in February of 1929 in order to object to a proposal in Parliament that would combine Kenya, Uganda, and Tanakia. Kenyatta's personal opposition to the proposal was that it would dilute the power of the Kikuyu, who were the most powerful ethnic group within the current boundaries of Kenya. But he was ignored, unable to even get a meeting with the Secretary of State of Colonies. In March of 1930, Kenyatta got his message out to the Times of London, 
writing about five issues that the KCA would go on to champion. First, a demand that settlers return their land to the indigenous people. Second, improved education opportunities for black Africans. Third, the repeal of hut and poll taxes. Fourth, representation for black Africans on legislative councils. Fifth, freedom to pursue traditional customs. His article served up a prophetic warning that failure to satisfy these points must inevitably result in a dangerous explosion, the one thing all sane men wish to avoid. Their decision to not meet with the leader of the KCA showed that the British didn't quite know what to do with Kenyatta or his people. This was in part because the Kikuyu people didn't fit the mold of what the British understood to be African. England's imperial system depended upon a system of indirect rule, where they would co-op a minority group and heap upon them privilege in exchange for enforcing discipline and control over the rest of the population. This co-option began with the tribal chiefs, but the Kikuyu were stateless and thus had no chiefs. The innovative English thus created chiefs. These newly crowned leaders chosen by the colonizers were immediately viewed as illegitimate in the eyes of the Kikuyu people. That meant that they turned to an iron fist in order to exert the requirements that had been agreed upon through collaboration with the colonizers. Meeting the British demands for labor recruitment and tax collection were near Herculean tasks for these chiefs, who grew fat living a life of privilege that had not existed prior to this point in their history. Those that cooperated were granted access to more fertile land in the reserves, superior seed for planting, and access to local cheap labor compensation. The men and women who took the deals offered became the backbone of the Kikuyu loyalists. Although only 6% of the Kikuyu land was taken by the British, a number of other policies endangered their traditional way of life. The lands of African reserves were drawn in ways to isolate some and exploit local feuds for others. The British were experts at divide and conquer. Hut and poll taxes were established at artificially high rates, at times as much as two months of an African's wages. If one was unable to pay, they would be forced off of their land, which would be auctioned off or given to a loyalist to curry favor. Those that lost their land were forced to abandon their tribal life and search for work in the city, which at this time remained untaxed. Men were forced to carry a kaponde, a form of identification kept around their neck. The locals referred to it as a buai, or goat's bell. The British used it to track and control the population. Locals were limited in what they could produce, so as to not interfere in the markets chosen by settlers. The wealth from cash crops remained inaccessible to the local population. They also put artificial price ceilings on anything sold by an African. Thus, even in times of shortages, the Kikuyu couldn't increase their profit, 
and were occasionally forced to sell their goods at a loss. Jomo Kenyatta returned home from England in September of 1930 with just one concession regarding education policy of his five proposals. He returned to London in 1931 and was again subsequently ignored. Attempting to wait out the colonial office, he enrolled in a British college for what he imagined would just be one year. It turned out that he would not return to Kenya for the next 15 years. This time abroad is a fascinating one that I will just briefly summarize for time's sake. He testified for Parliament, met Mahatma Gandhi, moved to the Soviet Union, and was called out for being a communist, before then later being accused of joining fascism with the outbreak of World War II. He met a rich English noblewoman, abandoned his family at home, and had children in London. He graduated with honors from the London School of Economics, publishing the 1938 document of Facing Mount Kenya. It was an impassioned defense of Kikuyu cultural traditions. He would go on to publish a number of other works, which were well sought after at home. He worked as a farm laborer, college lecturer, workers' right advocate, and as an extra in movies. Most impressively, he fell in with a crowd of African nationalists a group which included the future presidents or political leaders of Malawi, Ghana, South Africa, Northern Rhodesia, and Sierra Leone. The decolonization of Africa was being planned by Africans situated in the heart of the empire, much the same way that the colonization had been decided in Berlin. Time spent with the Pan-African Federation appears to have been the key formative time for Kenyatta, the politician. From this point forward, he was first and foremost a nationalist. He even attended the great American statesman W.E.B. Du Bois' final Pan-African Congress. This group discussed plans for nationalist movements across the continent of Africa, as well as their demands for colonial independence and the end of racial discrimination. He returned home to put the ideas into action in 1946, one year after World War II had left Kenya's fertile land devoid of its nutrients. The Kenyan people had risen up to defend their colonial overlords, fully expecting to be rewarded with independence for their brave actions. Jombo abandoned his second wife in London and married again to a woman who would die four years later, giving birth to another one of Kenya's growing brood. He took a job as the principal of Kenya's teacher college, continuing his long history of supporting education. In 1947, he became president of the Kenyan African Union Party, and advocated for independence. In 1951, he married for a fourth time, this time to Gina Muhu. But there wasn't much time for a honeymoon, as he was arrested on October 21, 1952. The dangerous explosion that he had warned about in 1930 had finally come to pass. We will cover that explosion known as Mau Mau in our next episode.